Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to be sitting down again today with the legend himself, Mr. Eric Weinstein. Eric, welcome back. Robert, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start today's session with a very lightweight question. Okay. (laughs) Can't even get that out with a straight face. (laughs) What does quantum physics tell us about the relationship between consciousness and reality? You know, it's only 1 p.m. where I am in California, so I have not even had my first bong hit of the day. (laughs) Thank you for asking. The, um, The nature of quantum consciousness and reality. What is quantum? Quantum... Oh, boy. Well, first of all, let's talk about what quantum really is as opposed to what we always talk about. We tend to want to talk about quantum as quantum weirdness, quantum entanglement, quantum measurement. But there's a lot of quantum that isn't weird at all. It's, in fact, very natural, very simple and beautiful. It has to do with just looking at waves in interesting ways. Um, And so... When it comes to trying to understand the quantum, uh, more or less, the lesson is, is that everything is a wave. We can talk about wave-particle duality, but I, I, I don't actually think it's terrible to say, look, we know it's all waves. Um, so more or less, the story of quantum field theory is the story of waves in some medium, that's hard to describe, interacting, colliding with each other, propagating and interacting. And... The part that we understand least is the, is the measurement problem. And the really interesting aspect of this is not much discussed. And in fact, I've never heard anyone say it this way, although once you say it, nobody argues with it if they know what they're doing. There are sort of good questions and bad questions in our regular classical world, right? So if I were to ask you, um, in some sense, uh, what is the exact point at which the United States is located in terms of its latitude and longitude? That would be a bad question because it's a diffuse object. So you're asking a very loaded question, sort of like, have you, have you stopped beating your wife today? Um, and classical mechanics won't answer the question. This, this, it's a bad question, so you're, you're going to get no answer. It stays mute. Mm-hmm. The super weird thing about quantum is that when you ask a bad question, it doesn't stay mute. So if I ask a good question in both classical mechanics and in quantum mechanics, I get a precise answer with zero ambiguity, no probability, except 1.00. Now, the technical name for a good question is a Hermitian Hermitian observable, which has the state vector for an eigenvector. That's some jargon. Just let it wash over. It doesn't really matter. It's for the people in the audience who are going to say, what does he mean? I've never heard this description. I'm a quantum physicist. All right. So in that realm, good questions are the same, non-probabilistic and deterministic, both between classical and quantum mechanics, quantum field theory. But if you ask a bad question, it has the form of a multiple choice question. So it says, you know, is, is this true or that true or the other thing true? And if your answer isn't anywhere, right? So for example, 
uh, are the members of the Beatles named George, Paul, John, or Ringo? Um, those are your answers. And there's no all of the above or relevant names. Then, like in that situation, there would be a one-quarter probability that the answer would be Ringo and all of the members of the band would turn into Ringo mm. or one quarter, pro, you know, 0.25 probability that it's John and suddenly everybody's got circular glasses. That's a weird thing. So we call that a superposition where the idea is that the multiple choice answers, which we call eigenstates of the observable, which is the question. So we call the question a Hermitian observable. The possible answers are the eigenstates and the truth of the system would be the state. So a good question has the truth, the state, for one of its answers, i.e. an eigenstate. That willingness, that solicitous nature of quantum theory, that it is willing to put up with lousy questions and give actual answers and then create, <laughs> cause the world to become compliant with the bad list of answers is where most of the quantum interest is. But that's not really what most of quantum mechanics is. It's really about rules for wave propagation. So now we get to the next thing about consciousness. There is a question about whether or not the brain generates the mind entirely. The brain is something that, you know, when we do an autopsy, we see an organ. When we have an injury, like in the famous case of Phineas Gage, uh, we can tell that when that brain, when that organ gets injured, there are cognitive shifts. So we've sort of deduced that the brain is the seat of consciousness. Now keep in mind, there's a second brain in your gut where there's an enormous number of neurons. We don't know whether it experiences some form of consciousness where it's like, why did you, why did we go to in and out when you knew we were stuffed? I don't know if it <laughs> does that. Um, but in any event, uh, the brain appears to generate the mind much the way your Apple computer appears to generate an operating system, even though that operating system is sort of a logical construct floating above the actual physical hardware. And one question is, does that probabilistic nature of quantum theory afford something miraculous like free will, like a deity having the ability to interfere with things? Is that a, is that a backdoor to the API where something can actually assert itself? And is the mind capable of being generated from the brain alone? Or is there some sort of, I don't know, ineffable gossamer that's sort of tough to touch without it disintegrating? So we've never figured this out. Famous things called the hard problem of consciousness. Some people claim that the brain is intrinsically a quantum mechanical object. Others have claimed that the nose is a quantum mechanical object. So the search for quantum mechanical biology, that is biology that cannot be accomplished through classical means, is kind of an interesting, weird topic. But um, that's my first impression, only drinking a little bit of coffee uh, <laughs> on consciousness, quantum, and uh, human goodness. No, that's a great start. Um, and so, when and this is, one of the most fundamental theories today, right? This is, I mean, so classic mechanics has really been debunked by quantum mechanics, right? Quantum mechanics is, no. sorry, maybe not debunked. 
it's a higher, it answers more questions than classical mechanics could. So classical mechanics is a blunter instrument than quantum mechanics. Yeah. You know, it's funny um, because I try to hang with the cool kids. Uh, I try to listen to what they say and they, they tend to say things like, um, they might say classical mechanics is an effective theory for a more fundamental underlying theory. So you recover it in a limit. It's a limiting case of something deeper. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, you know, sort of Newton would be an effective theory based on a more fundamental Einsteinian paradigm. And then Einstein might be a more, an effective theory based on a more fundamental paradigm than that. When you say it's one of our most fundamental, there are two most fundamental theories. Um, most people would say quantum mechanics, which is not really exactly right. So if you want to hang with the cool kids, you have to say quantum field theory, mm. which is quantum waves on top of classical waves. But there's some controversy there because maybe that's how we've done it, but maybe you shouldn't have had classical waves to begin with at all. You should mm-hmm. have started from an intrinsically quantum mechanical perspective. And by, by this point, we've chased all reasonable people out of the room uh, because they feel dumb and small. And this is terrible because this is, you're entitled to know what is known about reality at its most fundamental level. And just the way you have, you know, even Steve Jobs had no exact idea how an Apple computer worked. It's too mm-hmm. complex. There's too many people involved. And he was making Apple computers. I would say that there are very few people who can understand what quantum field theory means in part because it has some of the world's worst pedagogy or at least did historically and we mm-hmm. we're getting better at teaching it but really in, up until the 1980s i would say quantum field theory didn't look like a beautiful unified structure it looked like a grab bag of different tricks that were invoked at random to me anyway mm-hmm. and then a, a small number of people michael atia ed witten um dan quillen Graham Siegel more or less figured out a few others that um, this was all natural, that this grab bag of tricks actually had a unifying unified description and that more bizarre still, just the way you may have initially developed the calculus in order to understand the the motion of of planets or galaxies or who knows in in the night sky it turns out quantum field theory really isn't about physics. It's a structure that is used by physics. It was developed in physics departments. Nobody else had the foresight to see that the structure was necessary. But you know, you imagine that somebody's only seen calculus to describe physics, and then they suddenly see that an accountant is using it to optimize a client's profitability for unit of risk um, undertaken. And then you're thinking, wow, that, that looks like physics. No, the the point is that the math that looks, the math that is found first in physics looks shocking when applied to other things, but it very often applies much more generally. This was a point raised by Paul Dirac, I think in his lunch, luncheon uh, speech when he was receiving the Nobel Prize along with Schrodinger. Mm. Yeah, so, and so that what I'm getting at here, I think, is that quantum mechanics. And so we had this classical mechanics view of reality that was atomized, the billiard balls, clockwork universe. Right. For every action, there's equal and opposite reaction, et cetera, the Newtonian model. But quantum mechanics at a higher resolution basically says 
that these, what we've been calling particles are really just wave interactions. Is that correct? So yeah, again, we're going to get into part of the problem. Let me just tell you, let me let your uh, listeners who aren't physics, math people in on a little secret. Whenever you try talking to the public, you have two voices in your ear. One in the public that says, Can, can't you just speak simply and plainly and make sense? And your colleagues who sit around saying, you forgot to dot an I, you didn't cross that T. And you really need to tell your colleagues to screw off. But it's very hard because they're looking for every opportunity just to zing you. So in part, I'm going to try to bridge that gap in favor of your audience but just keep in mind that in part, I have to sort of think, oh, he just said quantum mechanics, or I have to correct him and say quantum field theory or this, that, and the other thing. Right. Okay. Yes. Quantum field theory. So well, let's just say the quantum in order to sidestep the issue. Fair. If you think about what is called a soliton, it's a very good example of a concentrated wave. So it was discovered initially by somebody on horseback looking at a wave in a narrow channel of water by the side of the road. And he, I think he rode for I don't know, half a mile or a mile, and there was this wave that was in shallow water that didn't dissipate. Hmm. So if you pulled back far enough, you could be forgiven from saying, okay, there's some dot that's moving along a water channel, and I don't even see it as a wave. I can see it as sort of a point, point-wise disturbance. So that concept sort of shows you that a wave can look a whole lot like a particle, right? You can have a wave that doesn't spread out. Um, and I think that more or less, I don't really think about particles at all. I think about waves that are highly concentrated. And when I need the concept of a particle, I imagine, okay, I've got a tiny little disturbance in some medium that's highly concentrated and it's effectively zero everywhere and non-zero and peaked in one small location. Think about a, um, oh, I don't know. If you look at uh, a bell-shaped curve for a very concentrated distribution of traits, uh, you'll notice that, that you can adjust the variance of that bell, the width effectively of most of the mass of that bell so that it can be as concentrated as you like. And in some limit, there's something called a Dirac delta function, which is sort of the infinite limit of a series of narrowed, narrowing bell-shaped curves where the bell becomes more and more peaked and it falls off ever more drastically. So in part, that's kind of our concept of a particle is, is that we're thinking about it in terms of a very sheep bell, steep, steeply um, concentrated bell-shaped distribution. Got it. And, and the, the distributions themselves are probability distributions? No, you recover probability distributions from them. Mm-hmm. So in other words, weirdly, the complex numbers that you were tortured with in high school uh, make an appearance. And the waves are waves that have a complex number sort of aspect to them. But then you don't use the complex numbers so much to create. So in other words, the waves that are actually propagating are generating 
probability distributions, which have less information than the original wave functions. Okay. So it looks pretty similar. We, we, we all get confused from time to time about this, but the waves and the probability distributions are tightly related, but not exactly the same. And the complex numbers uh, are, are probably the most obvious difference between them. Okay. And so one of the most mysterious things about uh, this general rubric of quantum we're using is that reality actually changes shape based on the way we look at it. And maybe this is in relationship to the wave particle duality of light. Um, and so my, my general question here is you referred earlier to this logical construct of the operating system sitting on top of the Apple computer. And there's been some theory, some theory put forth. I'm, I'm reflecting here on the, the book, The Case Against Reality by Hoffman, where he, he's positing that consciousness is like a, an interface like what we think is real, like we're observing objective reality, we're actually seeing some biological interface. So is it possible that we are seeing some logical, some biologically generated logical construct of reality versus reality itself when we're performing these observations? Well, boy, so you're dragging this guy Hoffman in and I've heard him on a few podcasts and he and I have never run into each other. Um, he comes out of a sort of a weird school, one of the UCs, I think it's UC Riverside or Irvine, I can't remember which, maybe there's a guy in Duncan Luce, can't remember exactly. But they get pretty crazily mathematical and psychological out there. And the question is always, are, are they bullshitting? Or are they on to something? Mm -hmm. You can definitely say certain things that people find confusing in this area that, that are easy. So one of which is, for example, does the color red really exist? A wavelength exists that we, our brain, our mind processes as red. We experience it as red, mm -hmm. but that's the proximate sensation. And the ultimate stimulus is the photon that hits the retina, mm -hmm. right? So the retina gets hit by a photon of a particular nature and it sends a signal and the brain says let's conjure up some of that redness mm. and feed it to the vis visual cortex or maybe it produces it in the visual cortex that's a good example of something where the subjective impression isn't really in the outside world it's something that we used to tag it then you have questions like the default mode network that's popular in psychedelic discussions mm -hmm. Uh, is the principal feature of the mind or the brain that it has to screen out almost all of reality. And you could certainly see this, for example, in your retina, since we're talking about that with the fovea versus the peripheral area, your brain probably couldn't handle uh, a highly pixel, a, a highly, highly resolved picture. So it says, well, we're going to have a ton of receptors in the fovea, and then we'll have very gross stuff in the periphery so it can alert you that you should put your fovea on a on a new topic but we're not going to spend the computational power to have you focusing on things that are probably irrelevant so it's, it's probably more important that you not look at the things in your peripheral vision than that you do look at me while we're having this zoom call is, is the so, fovea the point of focus yeah effectively okay, okay. 
I mean, it's the point of it. It's, it's the focus of attention because fo the word focus is overloaded, maybe more than okay. one thing, right? You can have an eye that isn't well-focused, but is focusing on something in terms of its attention. And that, that's a good example of the fact that you don't want all the information. I mean, can you imagine if God was keeping track of every single particle in the universe? What a waste of God's time. <laughs> but whether or not God exists, it's just a thought experiment. So mostly you want things to run on their own and you have a tiny amount of attention and you want to be able to place it in places that matter. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I had this conversation with a cognitive scientist for Vakey and he was saying that I don't know if this is the purpose of consciousness or a purpose of consciousness, but was to be able to place that fovea or that point of attention on things that aren't necessarily uh, understood that are maybe novel, I guess. Right. But to the ultimate to automate aim, everything. Yeah, exactly. To automate. So you want to, you want to embed that knowledge in your procedural knowing so that you're, you're almost freeing your consciousness up to focus on other novel phenomenon um, and I couldn't help but notice the connection here to something like there's that old Alfred North Whitehead quote that I'll roughly paraphrase, but he says, it's conventional wisdom that we should think before acting, but civilization advances by the opposite. The more important operations we can carry out without thinking about them, the more civilized we become, something like that. So it's... Um, it's as if we're trying to economize our action, right? Using the the fovea to deal with novel circumstances, but then embedded procedural knowledge to deal with familiar situations. Well, what's your pancreas doing right now, Robert? Something important, I'm sure. You have no idea. <laughs> yeah. You're the owner of some incredibly important machine. You have no idea what it does or how it works. Yeah. So that's an example of something that's been automated. There's a sort of more general, I mean, I'm just riffing with you, but there's a more general version of this that says the purpose of consciousness from an evolutionary perspective may be the direction of non-smooth muscle when to contract. It's like a very weird thing to unpack. Like consciousness is about non-smooth muscle. What the F? The, the claim is, is that the smooth muscle works on its own. You don't have access to it. Yeah. The only thing that the consciousness can control is the muscles that can be stimulated to, to like, do me a favor. Let's both snap our fingers on the count of three. One, two, three. Okay. So in that situation, our consciousness was able to direct our fingers to undertake an action. Uh -huh. Right. Whereas if you tried to tell your, your body to do peristalsis, it wouldn't know what to do in terms of moving food along your right. uh, intestines or whatever. And that, that's, that's an argument that consciousness can't be for anything that it can't direct. And all it can direct is non-smooth muscle, whether it's a smile, a wiggling of the ears, moving your eyes subtly. You know, there's this interesting scene in uh, The Godfather where Luca Brasi is being murdered. And just before... Uh, he's murdered. Um, he wants to light a cigarette. He's been offered a drink. And Philip Tatalia uh, is looking at Luca Brazzi getting a cigarette lit. And 
almost imperceptibly, he just looks up ever so slightly when he sees that Luca is not looking at him, but he's looking at the cigarette to see whether the guy who's behind him is in place to garret him with some piano wire. And you're just thinking like that tiny little move is all the only clue Luca Brasi has that he's about to be murdered and he misses it because Tatalia is, is directing his eye to do something ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. That was a, just an example of a tiny non-smooth muscle that got moved that had serious consequence. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So I love that you brought up the default mode network. Uh, you know, Michael Pollan, I don't know if you, I haven't read his book, but I just saw him do an appearance describing the default mode network as this, the analogy he used was a ski mountain, actually, with well-worn ski grooves in it. And that if you consider that those ski grooves are kind of like our habituated patterns of action, that we tend to kind of just fall into these patterns we've been repeating over time. Uh, then he also described psychedelics as a disruptor to the default mode network, which he analogized like a, like a coat of fresh powder on the mountain so that you could draw new pathways. Um, that is i guess so from a fractal standpoint which i kind of view the world fractally i don't i don't know how you feel about that but i guess we can talk about it my theory here is that the default mode network so these habituated patterns of action that we have there's a fractal external representation of that in our social institutions right we we ritualize these things and there's a um the book Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World talks about this, how religious ritual ultimately becomes social institution. So is then the state, as in the government, is it one of these reflections of collective default mode network that we just ritualize these behaviors? And then sucked into a libertarian road to serfdom Austrian <laughs> economics perspective. I'm just no, theorizing out loud. I have, this might all be completely bogus. I'm That's just, cool. Yeah. Well, like for example, you know, why is, let's talk about Jimi Hendrix and the national anthem. That's a good answer to that question. Jimi Hendrix might've been on acid. <laughs> and what he did to the national anthem, well, I don't know how much we want to go into this. I think it's a fascinating story. Before Jimi Hendrix did that, a, uh, a blind Puerto Rican genius uh, by the name of Jose Feliciano, a virtuoso guitarist, was, I guess, in San Francisco, maybe it was the World Series, um, invited to, I think people thought they were being progressive. We'll have this Puerto Rican blind genius who can feel good about ourselves. He'll do the national anthem. And man, did he do the national anthem. And it was even more shocking than Jimi Hendrix's because it was a little, you remember the guy, uh, what's his name? Israel, can't remember his last name. who did Over the Rainbow, uh, Hawaiian style. Uh, I, is he the heavier set guy? Pardon me? Yeah. Like Have you said, huge, I know who you're dead, talking about, yeah. but I can't, I don't know the name. Yes. The song's amazing. So, yeah, but he was not hearing the same song that the rest of us were. He was just on his own trip, totally different chords. And that's what Jose Feliciano did to the national anthem. 
he played this Puerto Ricanized version, very melodic, very, I mean, just a genius idea. And the call, the switchboard lit up, which is like, you've desecrated America. This is the end of the world. And I believe that that's what Jimi Hendrix was reacting to. It's like, oh, you're going to pick on my uh, Hispanic friend from outside the system. Well, check this out during the Vietnam War. We've got bombs bursting in air. And you're going to hear that on my strat. So that was a good example of this, where it's shocking because we've all been grooved. But after that, are we shocked? No. In fact, if I hear some super talented, if you show me Whitney Houston or Joe Satriani or somebody playing the national anthem, and I just get a straight national anthem, I want my money back now. <laughs> right? Because I'm hella skiing. I'm not doing this yeah. grooved, groomed runs with the hard packed powder with the cats. I'm looking for a once in a lifetime experience. So fly me to the middle of some glacier and let me risk my life in an avalanche. But I want something that I, I can put on my, uh, or take off my bucket list. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. I think that we can't afford to take too much off Mostly you want to put everything that is not interesting to you on automate, auto, auto, automatic pilot, mm -hmm. right? Like if you could direct your pancreas, would that be exciting for you? No. you to think about it. I prefer it self-directed. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So I think that that's kind of where we're at is that you can fantasize about beginner's mindset, but beginner's mindset is very expensive. More or less, you want to shift everything. Nature knows what she's doing. Yeah, You want to shift everything that can be shifted into automated behavior. And then you want to pull everything that's no longer working on an automated basis. I've, I, you know, One thing I'll talk about is imagine that you only have experience with a river in a temperate climate in running freely. And then one year it's unseasonally cold and it freezes and you go to your favorite rock to dive into the river, but you have no experience of ice, right? So that was an automated behavior, but it can't yeah. be now. Yeah. Right. Or, or like a bird flying repeatedly into your window. Or in my case, the birds want to mate with my car mirrors or they just admire themselves. Or they, Who's that? Hot? Who's that hottie? And they just fly into the mirrors all the time. <laughs> You've got to make sure that if you're making an error, that you go back towards consciousness. So I think we, we both automate and de-automate. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I've heard this 
the definition that Jeff Booth put forward for intelligence was error correction, actually. So you want to error correct. You want to get this thing in a form of autopilot, put it in procedural knowing, and then go focus on other things that need to be automated. Um, so there's a there's a connection then between this this pursuit for automation internally and externally. We're doing it through social institutions. Does this get us back to Keith? Um, I'm sorry, I forgot the term. Keyfabe? Keyfob. Keyfabe. No, no, don't say Keyfob. Kfabe. Because then you automate the things that are boring, right? Like I want to automate my pancreatic function. I want to automate the the accounting and banking system. Clearly that's boring. But if it's dangerous, then you get into Kfabe, right? Wasn't that the thing you said? If it's boring plus dangerous, that it's ripe for Kfabe? Did I give you a petard on which I must be hoisted now? I don't know. Uh, let's think. Yeah. Um, well, the, the thing is, is that you want to ritualize this as a work. So if you rehearse your routine, I, I think you're getting to the issue of how tightly choreographed is something like professional wrestling. Um, well, let's talk about this in terms of music, for example. When you hear a solo, is it improvised the way Jimi Hendrix would improvise it? Because he would never play the same thing twice. So, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, Jimmy Page wouldn't play it. So all these guys came out of a blues tradition. Now, my friend Rick Beato has changed my thinking about music. And his point was is that popular music moved away from blues and everything went towards being tightly choreographed and performed. And I think one of the things you see with uh, people your age, closer in age to you than me, but even younger than you, is that they're very focused on getting 30 perfect seconds of behavior for Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is. Right. And they rehearsed it to a you know, fairly well. And so they're very comfortable with fake. And in my time, people didn't used to talk about fake quite so openly. Like I was just on a, on a call with uh, in one of these audio apps with Tiffany uh, Hadish. I don't know how to pronounce her last name exactly. And she was talking about it. She's like, Anybody else need to take their eyebrows off or eyelashes off? Sorry, eyelashes, not eyebrows. And (laughs) I thought that was a little strange to talk about one's false eyelashes. Um, I don't think it's as strange for younger people who are sort of used to the idea of being authentic means owning your kayfabe. Like my generation would still pretend the slogan for maybe it's maybe it's real, maybe it's Maybelline. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. Somebody, somebody now would say, "Look, I, I just had my, I just had my breasts enlarged. What do you think?" I think that's a really strange thing to do. Wasn't the whole point to fool me? Yeah, unclear. So I think that there is this aspect about real upon fake upon real upon fake that we're getting into, and constantly playing with the fourth wall um, is something. You know, obviously, like Pirandello. What was it? five characters in search of an author or seven characters, forgot the number of characters or uh, any one of these things where the fourth wall was in play in the theater in an earlier era. I think that that's left a pretty powerful legacy. Gonzo, for example, would be a breaking of the objectivity where the journalist would say, I couldn't handle the situation. So I popped some pills and uh, 
you know, mainline some H into my arm so I could hear him, him more clearly. You're thinking like, what are you telling me? Um, that, that's very strange. Uh, we can't keep the contrivances. We're ever more dependent upon them. And so we start to accept that fake is real. Yeah. Well, you know, what came to mind here was the, the idea of marketing or advertising. They say that it doesn't even matter. I think this came up maybe in the video I saw that someone did on kayfabe about you, where they're saying that in advertising, you know, it doesn't matter necessarily that you see the guy drinking the beer and there's all beautiful women around and everyone's having a good time. Like the consumer knows it's BS. It's not like you pick up a Michelob Ultra and all of a sudden beautiful women appear, but it's, it, it hacks you at a deeper level almost. Just You do and you don't. Yes. So the problem is, is that the, the fiction of the unified mind, now, I've often said that, um, well, like for example, I, I believe that male sexuality is akin to owning a, well, how do I put this? Let's imagine that you think of your sexuality as a, as a child, that you have a three-year-old that falls for everything. That's about right, yeah. Right? <laughs> okay. It's sparkly. It's this, it's that. And you're thinking, really? You're fooled by that? But he's like, he's just delighted. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And so you have to pay for what he breaks and, and, and what damage is caused. But I think that it's a sort of a, a good example that we know at one level that our brainstem is falling for things that our prefrontal cortex is revulsed by. Yeah. Right. There was a famous Seinfeld episode where his brain and his loins were playing a game of chess because he found this woman who is absolutely attracted to, but he couldn't stand her intellectually. She was just an affront to his sensibilities. And, you know, it turns out that that corresponds to something that in the case of arousal, for example, it takes place in the sympathetic nervous system. There's two separate systems called reflexogenic and psychogenic. And the psychogenic, that is imagery and thoughts, and maybe even smells, works on one system. But if you have a brain, if you have a spinal injury and, and the and the spinal cord is damaged or severed, uh, you can still have some sexuality through reflexogenic arousal, which takes place in a different uh, locus. So the, the loci of the brain or the, or the you know, spinal stem is different. I think we're just not used to the idea that our minds are intrinsically divided. Mm -hmm. you know, and this, for example, came up when I had an erotic actress on my podcast where I was determined to do an entire episode without any sexual heat because my claim was we couldn't normally have a discussion because everyone will giggle and laugh because of what she does for a living. And therefore we can't discuss something super important and sex, sexuality and pornography are examples of something that are transforming our world that we can't talk about because any attempt to talk about it triggers this unwanted brain process. Like you're trying to have a serious conversation about something that might have life and death implications. It might have, you know, really significant life implications for somebody entertaining a career. Who knows? We can't do it. We're not smart enough to realize that we've got to locate the conversation in one place. And that's partially why we have very sort of sterile terms. If you think about banking and the banking system, 
we talk about it, much needed relief, right? A much needed stimulus was uh, administered by the Fed today through the treasurer. Was it much needed? Was it relief? Was it stimulus? What, what was that? Was it easing? Did, did somebody ease your pain? <laughs> <laughs> it's the language. You, you know, nobody says uh, millions of Americans who uh, were too poor to own risk assets were again diluted by the Federal Reserve. Right. Right. And so if, if, if they said we're again diluted, you'd have this idea that you were under attack. We are at war. Yes. There's an evil cabal that is making my hard work worth less every time it prints. Right. But instead, we have this group of druids um, who know slightly more math than other people, but much less than mathematicians, using this prettified language so that our limbic system doesn't, we don't show up at their econ departments with pitchforks and torches telling them we mean business. And that's fascinating. This happened during the financial crisis where there was, I think I have the article somewhere in a box, said we learned that if we used the phrase non-recourse loans, we would have two weeks before people figured out that we had put them on the hook in case everything went wrong. <laughs> it was like the ultimate heads we win, tails you really are going to lose. But there was no way in which the permanent players of the game were going to get hurt. Non-recourse loan sounds so boring. You don't even want to focus on it. What's a non-recourse? I don't know. Some kind of a loan. I guess it's a loan with less recourse. You did what? You signed me up for what? It's just, it's such an affront to the mind. So is this, I mean, the situation you just described, it's almost like the Federal Reserve or whatever, insert institution, government institution here. They're advertising basically in the same way the beer commercial would, right? Um, by encrypting maybe the, the meaning to some extent. Because to your point, when they say non-recourse loan, which is just like you're on the hook, people just can't interpret that properly. So they get, they're right. buying themselves time. Yeah. Well, but, but this is the whole point. None of us are welcome on their channels to talk about this. Right. If somebody said non-recourse loan or troubled asset relief, today the troubled asset relief program or TARP, what troubled asset? Well, the problem is, is that we can't actually sell these assets. Oh, you can't? Because I'll buy them. Just knock the price low enough, I'll buy them up myself. Oh, you mean you can't sell them at a price you like? Right. Because I'm pretty sure that I would like to sell my Volkswagen Passat for two million bucks, and I can't find a buyer. Can I get my troubled uh, automobile relief program? And I mean, I think that what really offends me is is that if I'm going to be lied to, it needs to be by somebody who's much smarter than I am, just out of respect. Right. The problem is we have people who are lying to us as if we're, um, you know, mentally disabled fourth graders. And we're like, no, no, you can lie to me. I don't expect the full truth from anyone, 
But this much lying this poorly is not really something that I was looking forward to as an American adult. Amen to that. So, okay. Is this type of advertising, I'm thinking between the Fed here and the beer commercial, are they both preying on, is it the, the psychogenic or reflexogenic system? or is it well, that, That's for system? arousal, right? We could do the same thing with food. I was just thinking stim, like stimulus package. Like right. It's a euphemism. Right. So what are they, is, it, is this a psychological operation targeting certain brain systems that are trying to hijack people's higher logical reasoning about situations? Well, you ever go to a ridiculous restaurant where uh, my name is Dwayne and I'll be taking care of you this evening. Oh, Dwayne, what's on the menu? Well, we have uh, flame-kissed uh, ahi, drizzled, you know, drizzled, soaked, kissed. It's like, are you, are you trying to seduce me? Or are you trying to tell me what's on the menu? We have different conjugations of language depending upon what we want. Now, if you ask for everything to be incredibly clinical, you're not going to have a great life. Maybe everything will be accurate, right? But like if somebody offered you, I mean, do, do you eat hamburgers? Oh, yeah. Okay. Robert, we, we happen to have... Uh, an abattoir here where we, we we slaughter our own cows. Would you like to inspect it so that you know exactly what's going on? It's like, actually, I don't want to see what you're going to do. I know that somehow it's connected to a cow that used to be alive. But if I offered it, would you like one of our dead flesh burgers? It was killed within the last two weeks. Okay, so this is the dead flesh of a cow. It's a freshly ground carcass. <laughs> exactly. You don't want to know certain things. You don't want to be thinking about them. So in certain senses, we ourselves want not to use particular language. I think there's a feature in English, which is a Teutonic language. So it's, it's Germanic, but it's got a ton of romance uh, loan words, right? And so I believe that the food versions of an animal are usually romance and the description of the living animal is usually Teutonic. Mm. Right. So my guess is that something like cow might be closer to German and, you know, beef bourguignon is going to be boof, you know, it's going to be French mm. and Latin derived. So we maintain different words for the same things, depending upon whether we want to visualize. Now, Philip, uh, What's his name? Jesus. Can't even remember the architect's name. It's on the tip of my brain. Um, who did Glass House. I think it's in Connecticut. Hmm. A house where you can see every bit of the house from every other part of the house, I think except for the bathroom. And I don't think that's a very safe way to architect a mind. You don't want a mind that can see every bit of itself from every other part of itself. Hmm. On the other hand, when you want to inspect something, you want visibility. And when you want to not inspect something, you want opacity. And whether somebody else is regulating your visibility or opacity, and whether it's for your benefit or your detriment, gets into the trust issues that we're talking about. But I don't want you to think that your brain wants to know everything. It really doesn't. 
it just wants to be lied to or misinformed or spun or advertised to uh, in ways that it finds comfortable. Like I found it very strange in Silicon Valley. People would say, pitch me, bro. You're thinking, pitch me? Like lie to me or spin me? <laughs> and, and this is part of this thing about being, you know, when, when, uh, when Tiffany says this thing about, does anyone else need to take off uh, her eyelashes tonight? Um, there's a way in which let's go down to spin alley to find out who won the debate. Well, you're calling it spin alley. This is the, the point of view of the smart Mark, the Mark who is supposed to be not in on things, but is on in on things being catered to as if they are in on things. And I, I just find that all of this fascinating. Of course, this was a lot harder to see a short time ago when I wrote, wrote the essay on kayfabe, which was, I don't know, 2011 or 2013, maybe it was 2011, can't remember. It was shocking to people. Mm -hmm. And I think that things have slid so far. I mean, I was very fortunate to have gotten ahead of that before we actually had our first president, who's also a member of the World uh, Wrestling Entertainment Group. Um, you know, after Donald Trump's election, I think everybody got the idea, oh, kayfabe is some super serious thing. This is not a children's issue. This is an issue of the limits of human self-deception. And this is something that professional wrestling understands better than most psychology departments. Yeah. This is really an advanced form of, of, of understanding of the mind. Yeah, it really is. And it's, it's shocking almost. Um, you know, I'm recalling here that our earlier discussion of psychedelics in a way, it's like, it seems like a, a lot of what the mind is doing is filtering out, right? So we can focus on things. And so I guess that involves the threat of self-deception or external deception. Someone could, can prey on that opacity. But we also want it, right? We want to eat the sausage, but not know how the sausage is made kind of thing. Um, we want different things at different times. And we're balancing. We're fine-tuning our own. I want to know. I don't want to know. I want it, I want this in stark terms. I want this in prettified terms. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a theory in psychology that says in order to deny something effectively, you actually have to keep a very good copy because otherwise you wouldn't know what the contours of the object were. Mm. So if you don't want to run into a truth that might destroy your entire life because it would obligate you to action. Mm -hmm. you very often in like a violent picture, the bad guy who's stronger does something super insulting to, uh, to the other, or it could be the good guy, for example, the equalizer. Um, Denzel Washington keeps offering people opportunities to escape their fate, which they don't take. Mm -hmm. because they make a, a decision that it would be too humiliating. You know, at some point he kills somebody over $9,800. And his point is you're about to die in the next 30 seconds because you didn't want to pay $9,800. Well, so <clears throat> another, uh, an example of Seinfeld came up in my mind too, is that that episode where George is commingling, uh, his sexual partner and his eating habits. He's like eating the sandwich. I don't know if you ever saw that one. Yeah. I think, didn't he want sports as well? He wanted to watch sports, have sex and, <laughs> and eat a sandwich at the same time. Yeah. 
And it's kind of like that circuitry, right? That, that same circuitry that we want to, you know, that is our appetite for food is also the appetite for lust and these other things. So, I don't think so. Oh. I think those things are tagged differently. Okay. So for example, I've often said that air hunger is one of the few things that has a priority interrupt above sexuality, right? For men, sexuality was such a rare thing to come by that nature determined that you should risk death for a single opportunity to advance your genes. And you see this in like sexual cannibalism in arachnids and in mantids where the males have to risk death in order to advance and they don't always die. The female doesn't always eat her mate, hmm. but if she does, she stimulates the mate to copulate maximally vigorously because there's never going to, you know, if your head is bitten off, there's going to be no second chance. <laughs> That's right. And so you, you have all these really exotic strategies in which you're trying to figure out, well, if these two, if, if food and thirst came in conflict, what would you do? Or if thirst and safety, like crocodiles um, inhabit a very narrow um, band of water right next to the edge and animals have to drink if they want to survive. And they know that the crocodiles are there, but are you thirsty enough to want to risk having your head bitten off in a death roll? You can get thirsty enough where you say, F it. <laughs> Anything is better than this. I'll take that risk. So I, I think that nature tags all of these things differently so that she can prioritize and those priorities shift. Right. And they shift toward what ultimately genetic well, preservation just, and reproduction. Let's imagine that you were incredibly dehydrated. Dehydrated is an ultimate condition. Thirst is approximate. Yeah. So thirst can be reset when dehydration is is uh, remediated, right? So you're not as thirsty after you've had a few sips. So you could imagine if there were a lot of crocodiles and you managed to get the first few sips that you would prefer to keep drinking, but it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. So that, that priority changes almost instantaneous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is like the marginal value in economics, right? We're shifting things up and down that hierarchy. Exactly. And you see this with... Um, you know, infants in the wild are targets of predators and mothers. I mean, look, maternal love is one of the most violent forces in the known universe. You see all sorts of animals do desperate things to save their children, their offspring. On the other hand, you also watch when an animal realizes that there is no chance that the predators that have descended upon the offspring cannot be beaten. And you watch a parent walk away to try to breed in another cycle. Like I'm going to give up. It's not worth it. They don't, your mother may love you more than anything else in the world. She may be willing to kill for you and risk her own life. But at some point, if she's still got more gas in the tank, okay, well, I guess we'll try again next season. Yeah. Which makes all the sense in the world when evaluated through a genetic perspective, 
Right. Those genes are basically telling the vehicle to go try again somewhere else. Well, but this is the thing. Who wants to actually explore all these questions? Like when, once you have a couple of kids and they say, okay, hypothetically, mom and dad, if I were in a situation in which this, and my sibling was in a different situation, what would you do? And your attitude should be none of your damn business will probably never cross that bridge. And I would, I'll come up with something brilliant. So we'll never face it. So you lie to your children because you don't know the answer. And to answer the question, is it self-destructive? Yeah, agreed. So, so interesting. So how then it's like, we have to, and this maybe plays into the useful fictions that we have to have as humans as well, right? Like, you know, government, language, money, these things are all useful fictions in a way. So we have to deceive ourselves to some extent to organize ourselves, to economize our action, to economize our conscious bandwidth. If we just opened it up, then it's there's too much. So how do we balance that? need to deceive ourselves and others to some extent or use useful fictions with the risk of actual self-deception, which I guess would get into. We have to self-deceive. Bob Trivers wrote a book about this called The Folly of Fools, where if you don't have self-deception, you're toast. I mean, look, I think I have something like 10,000 days left in my life. How many do you have left in yours? I mean, who knows? Uh, well, you could calculate it. Yeah. You could call up your insurance company, find call figure out where you are in the life tables, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then you could have some variance and you have a pretty good idea of how many days you have left. Yeah. Very few people calculate it. Yeah, I have not done the math. <laughs> that allows you to get up every morning. You screwed up yesterday. Yesterday was a waste figure out what percentage of your remaining life yesterday was, it'll, it'll depress you. This way you have an, in, you have an infinite series of tomorrows until someday you realize, Oh, that's not true. Yeah. Self-deception is incredibly important. You know, this is the thing I pushed out to Sam Harris when I went on his show where I, I said, we have to optimize for truth, but it's not only truth. It's also meaning fitness and grace. And then Jordan Peterson and Sam had a conversation where Jordan, unaware of my conversation with Sam, pushed out the idea that fitness was part of truth. That if something left you unfit or less fit that would kill you, it wasn't a truth. And he was getting at this deeper point that at some level, there are things that trade off against truth, but it was misformulated and misinstantiated. And so Sam had the better of him. And I just have to recognize that truth, meaning, fitness, and grace are the four things that I can't, I can't whittle it down beyond that. There are times when truth is the most important thing. I would say default truth is usually the most important thing. Mm-hmm. There are times when truth destroys meaning. And sometimes I opt for meaning over truth. And then there's an issue of fitness. If I learn something, I become less fit because maybe my brain obligates itself to do something like something's traumatic. And if I learn it, my brain will stay the rest of its life in a trauma loop with no utility. And lastly, there's a question about grace, which is, do I want to become a horrible person? Even if I could become more fit, more truthful, 
and have more meaning in my life, I might decide that I would become a monster. And so there's certain ways in which grace is actually an important feature. So this is a very interesting rabbit hole. What, how do you define meaning? What is the meaning of meaning? <laughs> Talk about getting, you're missing up. one meaning. What is the, so I, of, so I, I have this line. So I mean, some people make fun of me because I'll, I'll have these conversations with rabbis and um, wise elders in the science world. And I, they say, well, Eric, what's the meaning of life? And I said, so far as I can get it, the meaning of life is the struggle to impart meaning to meaning. Okay. Now, what is each, so the word, the meaning of life is the first ish instance of the world. And it's the struggle to impart meaning to meaning. So the last meaning is the proximate sense of meaning. Our brain has a sense that something momentous is happening. Mm -hmm. You know, like the birth of a child. We have a feeling of meaning. That's a proximate sense that our brain can tag anything with. I'm sure that there are certain drugs you can take in which everything becomes highly meaningful. Mm -hmm. It's not because everything is meaningful. It's because that tag is somehow loosened up. Mm -hmm. I love you, man. No, no, Robert, you're not. I love you. <laughs> you. Yeah. You've had that conversation with a drunk person or a stone person. <laughs> you may be that drunk or stone. <laughs> okay. So then you're trying to impart meaning to meaning. Well, it happened that when I took that drug and I felt that I was one with the universe, that was kind of not really right. But when I had the birth of a child, that was meaningful. I was perpetuating the species. I was give, leaving a copy of myself because I will die and this thing will also die, but leave a thing that will leave a thing that will leave a thing. And maybe the idea is, is that perpetuation is a part of actual meaning. And you could also take the attitude and say, actually, that's not good enough. So Agnes Collard, for example, says that meaning has to ground out in this life and can't be infinitely deferred. Mm -hmm. Interesting perspective. We can talk about the structure. And then you're talking about the meaning of life isn't either of those two meanings in my little aphorism. It's the struggle. And why is there a struggle? It's because if you actually claim that there's no meaning to life, so you, you, you go back to Shakespeare and uh, sound and fury signifying nothing, then you failed because you're no longer struggling. That's stated with confidence that life is but a poor player uh, who struts and frets upon the stage or whatever that, that quote is. That is not success. Or if you say, you know what the meaning of life is? It's Jesus. Well, now you've arrived. You're not struggling anymore. You've just found that you can put the meaning of life onto a word you call Jesus, and you've now opted out. Mm -hmm. So the struggle to impart meaning to meaning is to keep the ultimate version of meaning, like doing something good or something intrinsically beautiful and, and transcendent or whatever, tied to the feeling of transcendence. And those things you have to be struggled with to be kept together. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that there's three different concepts of meaning here. 
And ultimately you need struggle between them because otherwise you'd reach an answer. And then what would you do? <laughs> what would you do beyond that? <laughs> right. You've already found the meaning of life. So I guess you watch reruns of uh, Gilligan's Island. 